0: Got the papers and the trash. Welcome to the CODcast. I'm Bruce Moell of Commonwealth Magazine, and with me today is Stephen Lazauskas, the vice president of Waste Zero, a North Andover company that helps municipalities reduce their trash disposal costs by promoting recycling. We're talking about trash and what to do with it. Steve, let's start with the state, state's largest landfill in Southbridge, What's going
1: on with that? Well, it, it's interesting, and it speaks to a larger issue with solid waste management generally. Uh, but what's happening with the Southbridge landfill is it's up for renewal. And it the owner of the landfill, Casella uh, Waste Solutions, is seeking to expand that landfill. And if they're unable to expand that landfill, um, and that landfill is in uh, Southbridge, but there's a proposal that uh, would also expand it into the neighboring town of Charlton, uh, that if they're unable to expand that landfill, it has to close. And if that landfill closes, that's about 40% of the remaining landfill capacity in Massachusetts when you also look at the other large landfill in Chicopee that's closing now. So the two two of the three largest landfills in Massachusetts are are, are at risk of closure. One is actually closing in Chicopee. And then you have Southbridge, which is trying to expand to stay open, But you have the local boards uh, that appear to be in opposition to it. You have Charlton, uh, who took a position uh, that uh, was not in in favor of the expansion. And then in June, a local referendum uh, where voters, not it wasn't a huge turnout because it was a June referendum, um, but where voters said they were not in favor uh, of instructing the town to support uh, the expansion of the landfill. And that was
0: a referendum pushed by the um, the landfill operator. They, That's correct. They wanted that referendum. They spent a lot of money trying to get support for it, and they lost. That's correct. So what does that say that uh, there's growing opposition locally to a landfill like that.
1: Well, I think what it says is that the state's position about not there's a there are waste disposal bans uh, on particular items, but there are also uh, moratoria on new landfills or new incinerators. There's some are formal, some are informal, but I think it's a reflection of the fact that people don't people are concerned about their properties, people are concerned about their neighborhoods, and not a whole lot of people say uh, they want to live near a landfill. And where there's a landfill, am I going to continue to get the truck traffic and the other things? I mean, the neighbors, when when my town was building a park across the street from my house, my neighbors went crazy about building a park. And that's for kids and baseball and soccer, never mind something that has a lot of truck traffic and noise and other things that people may be concerned about. What I think it says is neighbors are concerned about any development and a landfill or a waste energy facility, but a landfill in particular.
0: Let's talk about uh, what why this landfill closing might be relevant to people at large in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Our trash goes to... Three. There may be more than, that, but three directions. They go to incinerate. It mm-hmm. goes to incinerators. It gets buried in the ground, landfills, and then it gets shipped out of state uh, yes. to to other states that are more willing or more have more room to accept trash. Is that is that cover the? That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right. So the um, so shutting down two landfills. What kind of predicament does that put the rest of us in uh, with what what to do
1: with our trash? So uh, stepping back just a little bit, in the 1980s, there are about 300 landfills operating in Massachusetts. Uh, Today, there are eight that accept municipal solid waste. There's a ninth, and there are several others that accept just uh, ash from incinerators. But when you look at the eight landfills operating for municipal solid waste in Massachusetts, they're not all created equally. You have three that are for host communities only. So the community that owns the landfill uses it for its exclusive purposes. So now we're down to five MSW landfills. And when you look at closing two of those, you end up with a couple of things. Uh, Landfills take about a third, maybe it's a quarter now, of our solid waste in Massachusetts. And if you shut off 40% of that, now that trash has to go somewhere. We're either going to reduce it, but we've not shown a strong inclination toward continuing to reduce waste. Uh, So that material has to go somewhere. The the waste energy facilities, the incinerators in Massachusetts, are at capacity. Uh, Now, I think they could burn more, but they're at the capacity of their air um, quality permits. So they're not going to accept more material. So if you're losing landfill space and you're not increasing recycling, and half of the material that's being disposed of is recyclable, so we could do it, but we're not then that material has to go somewhere. So that three or 400,000 tons of material every year has to go somewhere, and there's only one other option, which is exporting it. And from my perspective, that's where the conversation is really important. Are we backing into a solution, or are we proactively moving into a solution? That as the landfills close, the material has to be, something has to happen to it, if we're not talking about what we want to do with the material, do we want to increase recycling? Do we want to do more incineration? Do we want to expand these landfills or build new ones so we can keep the material locally? Or do we want to export it to places that we can pay to take the material? That's a decision, and I don't think it's a decision we should be backing ourselves into because there are environmental and financial implications that are pretty significant. But
0: it does seem like we're backing ourselves into it because um, no one... No one really talks about trash very much. It it seems like... uh, I've used this analogy before, but we all put... Well, in many communities, you put your trash out at the curb, someone comes and picks it up, you don't have to think about it anymore. Um, It's just something people maybe don't want to think about. Uh, But up on Beacon Hill, uh, they don't seem to be talking about it very much uh, either. Uh, So what is the situation up on Beacon Hill? Uh, What are they proposing
1: to do about this situation. Sure, and and this is an interesting issue because the state establishes a regulatory framework for this. They say they approve landfills and waste energy facilities, or don't. They approve the annual permits and, and continuation for it, or don't. But they don't generate or control the generation of the material. Cities and towns do. But the cities and towns don't control, they, generally speaking, couple exceptions, don't control the disposal assets. So you have something that sort of falls in between both. The state is not directly impacted. Its cities and towns are. But the cities and towns don't control the disposal assets, so they're generating it and could impact how much material is generated, how much people recycle or don't. Policy decisions drive that very specifically. But because they're not seeing the disposal assets in the way the state does, it sort of falls in the middle. And so you end up with the Commonwealth, uh, Senator Pacheco, uh, Mark Pachico from Taunton, as one example, has proposed for a number of years now uh, a, a performance standard for solid waste that would help cities and towns reduce trash and increase recycling. There have been other proposals to help increase recycling and reduce trash. There have been things from the Bottle Bill, which is a well-known and somewhat controversial, more than somewhat, it's a controversial subject. Um, there are a variety of things that have been discussed, but not a whole lot of traction, And I think the reason is, as you highlight, is because it's something people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But if you step back for a minute, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Okay, but what is the result of that? Inefficiency is the result of that. Cost is the result of that. If I know you're not paying a particular amount of attention to the particular subject I'm doing, I'm managing as a private business, people tend to charge you more for that. Because we, the, 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 People know you're not paying a lot of attention to it. So the result of that inattention is, number one, we're generating a whole lot more trash than we need to. The recyclable material that could be created could create jobs for people who need it, people who have the highest unemployment rate in our economy. That's not happening because we're not paying attention to it. Cities and towns, taxpayers, are paying more for trash disposal because we're not paying attention to it. let talk a little bit
0: about that, the, the cost of it. Um... It comes up periodically when municipalities negotiate contracts with trash haulers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it rarely shows up directly um, on your tax. I mean, it's it's usually rolled into your taxes, so you don't really get a sense of, uh, of some dramatic increase or what have you. It, it, is it rising? Is it going up?
1: Or is it is it getting cheaper to dispose of trash? so that's a that's a great question. So the price of disposal goes up and down based on market conditions. Uh, in the u s in the Northeast, our disposal costs are the highest in America. Uh, so our costs are very, very high when you look nationally and regionally, what we're seeing is and if you read the financial disclosures of publicly traded solid waste disposal companies and other things, they're banking on very pretty high. Increases in annual costs for trash disposal. In other words, they're banking on the fact that, and they publicly disclose, landfills are going away, so we're going to be able to charge more for the landfill space that we have or for the incinerator capacity that we have. So that's known. That's disclosed out there. So what we're seeing is the cost increasing. But the problem is the resident generates the trash. And because the resident generates the trash and their tax bill they pay annually, quarterly, whatever, there's not a line item for trash and recycling. But even if there were, it's so divorced from the decision they make as to whether to throw this bottle in the trash or the recycling. Because there's no connection there, people generate a whole lot more trash. I mean, if we look at pre Civil War in Massachusetts, uh, water was a public utility. We didn't have the metering technology. It was developed around the Civil War. So everybody paid, roughly speaking, the same. And what happened is when we implemented metering technology, we saw water usage drop by about a third because people could affect how much they pay. Even some of the large condo buildings that now that are sub-metering water... In the 2000-2015, when they're doing it, you're seeing a 30% reduction in water usage. Decades after we told everybody, "Hey, don't waste water." When you drive that decision, when you let people make the decision and feel the financial impact themselves, they make different decisions. Same with gasoline. Same with electricity. Same with clothing. Same with bananas. Same with everything. If you pay for what you use, you make better decisions. And because we're not doing that in Massachusetts, in every city or town, we do it in a bunch of cities and towns. But because you're not doing doing that, the cities and towns that don't generate a whole lot more trash, which has impacts for everybody because that trash, mostly recycling, needs to go into the landfill that you're using, that I'm using. So if I'm making a good decision and somebody else isn't, their bad decision still fills my landfill. Right. So the, um,
0: the metering equivalent with trash are policies that uh, generally don't put the onus entirely on the resident mm-hmm. to pay the full cost, but they pay a share of the cost of disposing of the trash. Uh, the most prominent example are the pay-as-you-throw programs, yes. where uh, in many communities you have to buy a sticker or buy a specific type of bag to put your trash in. And that payment you make, if you can keep it to one bag, that's all you're charged for. If you if you need three bags, you're going to be charged for three bags. Is, is that... So where are we with that? How many communities
1: are now doing pay-as-you-throw? And um, so everyone is aware, my company is very active in the space of pay-as-you-throw programs. We're active in it because we're a waste reduction company and they're the most effective programs. We're also active in a whole series of other waste reduction programs, but we are active in these programs in particular. So we have really good data on it. Um, Where we are is about 140 communities in Massachusetts have programs like that. Uh, And those communities, we know based on the data, generate a whole lot less trash per person than do the communities that don't. One of the issues is the bigger communities tend to have tax-based funded trash programs. So it's a program where you as a resident can't see the cost, you can't affect the cost. And so while we wish everyone would do the right thing, we know that people make better decisions when they are faced with the financial, uh, when they are faced with a, they can control the financial cost of something. So we see about 140 cities and towns who have implemented these programs, but many of them are small. And so there's a lot more that can be done by the gateway cities, by other communities, other larger communities, implementing programs like this that would save them a lot of money and help with our landfill and other issues. And it saves the community
0: a lot of money, you say, by by shifting to one of these programs.
1: It does. And one of the interesting things, and we see this more in Maine and New Hampshire than Massachusetts, though Acton, Massachusetts is a good example. The city or town, if you're charging for a bag or a sticker or a card or whatever you're charging for, they don't actually have to keep the revenue. They can just use the revenue as a reminder to the resident and then give the revenue back to them at the end of the year. Acton did it by reducing a flat fee. Some communities do it in other ways. But you don't actually have to keep the revenue. You can just use it as a reminder. And then the city and town saves $63 a ton, $80 a ton across 10,000 tons of trash. Yeah. And and
0: the, the market for recycling these days, um, you hear... It goes up and down, but you hear a lot of reports that there isn't much demand for all this stuff that we could recycle. Are we paying to get rid of it now, or are we, Are there markets for newsprint and paper and cardboard and, and bottles and what have you?
1: <clears throat> so another very fascinating question. So there are two, two answers to that. Uh, number one, as you said, markets go up and down. So are there markets for the material? Yes. Uh, But if you look at, and this is real, I'm a trash geek, so this is kind of interesting for me, Uh, but if you look at a community that collects the material on what we call deep sort. So if you're Wellesley, for instance, where the residents drop the material off and sort it for you versus single stream, you, you receive two very different prices for that material. So curbside collected single stream glass is worth negative $20 a ton. Last time I looked at it. Now the price is a little bit different now.
0: Negative 20 means that
1: the, the municipality has to pay $20 to have Correct. someone take it. Or, or the recycler has okay. to pay somebody $20 a ton to take the material. But if you get it deep sort, if you are a Wellesley or one of the communities that receives the material sorted, you make $20 a ton. So single stream has affected the value of recyclables in a very significant way. One, because with the increased convenience, people don't think as much about it, and you may you will get contaminants like the proverbial hamburger that goes in the recycling container. But you also have recyclables cross contaminate each other. So the glass may break, and small pieces of glass get in the cardboard. And now my ton of cardboard is only eighteen hundred pounds of cardboard and two hundred pounds tons of cardboard, uh, excuse me, of, uh, of crushed plastic and, and crushed glass, I'm not going to pay you as much for 1,800 pounds as I would for 2,000. And then I have to process it differently. So single stream has changed the value of the material. So the prices do go up and down, but they go up and down differently based on the way the material is processed before you get there. The material being more valuable if it's collected dual stream, where cardboard and paper, which are the bulk of material anyway, are collected separately than bottles and cans. Uh, That's one set of value. And the other set is a single stream value, and that puts you on the lower end uh, and impacts a little bit where you can sell the material because people don't want the contaminated material nearly as much.
0: Are there uh, curbside communities that do... I mean, I, I think they went to single stream to make it easier for people to recycle. Yes. But are there... Uh, curbside communities that do separate it out
1: more? Yes.
0: So if you're looking
1: at a Belmont, for instance, Belmont collects paper uh, and cardboard on one week and then bottles, cans, and everything else on the other week. There are several communities in central Massachusetts that do that. And there are several communities in New Hampshire uh, that are actually switching back from single stream to dual stream because their processing costs their hauler said to them their recycler said to them that they they're going to have to pay 80 something dollars a ton for the material the same as they were paying for their trash because the hauling cost is so much and the material is so is of so little value so they said well let's split it back out my 83% of the material that's paper and cardboard I want to preserve the value of that sure it may only be worth $50 a ton or $80 a ton but it's 83% of my material that's where most of my value is going to come in let me Protect that by collecting that separately than my bottles and cans, because my bottles really don't get contaminated with crushed glass.
0: Right. Right. The,
1: the fibers do. So there are communities that are moving in that direction. So many cities and towns now are starting to pay their processor for processing their recyclable materials. So the industry went to single stream. And then realized well the quality of the material is dropping, my cost of processing is increased. So I'd like to share that cost with cities and towns. So you have cities and towns that are now paying twenty three dollars a ton or 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 seventeen dollars a ton, whatever it is, for the material to be processed. There's still a sale a market for that material on the at the final end, and cities and towns that negotiate their contract the right way will get a share of that value back
0: right. so now what about a community like Boston? I live in Boston, and I'm stunned uh, continuously about you can put anything virtually anything and everything out at the curb, and voila, it it goes away yeah. and and doesn't come back <laughs> uh, and on my street. It's it's very evident that some people are pretty good about recycling, but I'd say most people are not. Mm-hmm. They they just whatever's convenient, they throw it in that bin and, and off it goes. Right. Um, and yet, I, as I understand it, Boston has made some progress yes. in r- reducing the amount of uh, waste going to, I think, incinerator landfills. Yes. Uh, what what are they doing? What are they, how are they doing that without
1: Making it pay as you throw. So there are a number of things communities can do to work at the margins. And so if you look at a Cambridge, for instance, Cambridge does a really nice job, but they spend a lot of money to get there. So you can do education. Now, talking to residents is something we've been doing for 30-something years. So your margin, you're going to invest a lot of money and your marginal outcome for that is relatively small. So I know Boston's been doing a lot of work trying to talk to multifamilies, trying to reach out to people um, at at a real grassroots level, and that can have an impact. Pay-as-you-throw is something, as one example, that overnight you're going to see a huge difference because people are responsible for buying and using these bags, and that changes behavior enormously. So there are things that one can do. If if I were Boston, I would pay particular attention to the multifamilies. Uh, because multifamilies are required to recycle, but you'll see some of these buildings putting out 10 trash carts and one recycling cart. And if you look at a multifamily environment, that shouldn't be the case. I mean, in a single-family environment, maybe it's 50-50 for somebody who's doing a really good job. For myself, uh, my town recycles every other week. So every other week, I'll put out about 70 gallons of recycling and I put out one 13-gallon bag of trash. Sometimes it's not full every week. So I'm roughly 35 gallons of recycling every week and 13 gallons of trash. So I'm not saying everybody should do that. I work in waste reduction. I'm kind of a nut about that. (laughs) But 50-50, from a volume standpoint, makes some sense. So if you have a lot of these multifamily properties that are putting out 10 times as much trash as recycling, there's something going on there. And that's one of the things that's really impacting, as I look at the data, uh, really impacting Boston's recycling rate, is Boston is an enormous amount of very large residential units will limit Boston's ability to, to really push recycling. You can do a great job because there's really good accountability in one, two, three, four, up to six family buildings. But after that, if it starts to break down because Boston's 60-some-odd percent that large building, that's really going to create a problem. Mm -hmm. So you can do education, you can do outreach, but where I see a real limiting factor for Boston is its ability to penetrate into the large multifamilies.
0: Strange question occurs to me. Um, so we're, we're downtown. You can look up and you see this magnificent Millennium Tower down the way. What do people in a building like that do, Because I don't see them schlepping the little blue carton out or, or a roller... Do they just put it down a chute and it, it goes off somewhere down in the basement, or, or how do they do it? Yeah, so that's
1: it, uh, interesting. Uh, every, build, every large building handles a little bit differently, and it really depends on the age. If you look at the v- most advanced high-tech systems, there are some multifamilies that uh, have rotating carousels of chutes. So I press this button, and this is going to go in the recycling chute. And I press that button; it's going to go in the trash chute. It's one chute, but it diverts the material. Right? Um, there are there are buildings that do that. Uh, some buildings will in the in the room where there's the trash chute. You've got the trash chute, and then next to it you have some blue recycling barrels that I can bring my recycling in uh, into, and then hopefully it goes into recycling. It just doesn't get. Right, thrown conveniently in the trash. Uh, So every building will handle it a little differently. Some will use dumpsters. And so you have a trash dumpster, and then the question becomes, how convenient is recycling being made for residents? One of the things that, because I do some work with Boston, I I will get feedback from residents who say, I just can't recycle in my building. Or there are 10 trash barrels, but the reason there's only one recycling cart is because that's all that's available. So what do you do as a resident when recycling is no longer available in your building? I have spoken to residents who carry it around looking for public recycling spaces, those big belly um, compactors the city has, but that's only going to catch a half a percent of the people or one percent of the people. Everybody else just makes the decision, well, I guess I have to throw it in the trash. So that's a really important issue is how that's managed.
0: Right. Now, the folks in Boston city officials have always maintained that if they did a pay-as-you-throw program, that there'd be a lot of dumping going on in the city, that I'd take my trash down, and as I'm driving by my neighbor's house, I'll throw it out on their lawn or whatever. Depends who the neighbor is. D- depends yeah. on who the neighbor is. <laughs> what do you think? Is, is, I've always thought, I, I agree with you, that these multifamily dwellings, that's where the difficulty would be. But is it doable in a place like Boston?
1: Uh, I think it is. Um, so if you look at Seoul, South Korea... Um, It's 2 million people, and they have a bag-based pay-as-you-throw program. And not only that, but they make the residents, and this may actually be Hong Kong, uh, excuse me, Singapore. Uh, It is Singapore, actually. They make the residents. um, Singapore has a program as well, so they both have them. But Singapore makes the residents meet the trash truck at the curb. So it goes down playing the ice cream truck song very, very loud (laughs) at the crack of dawn, and residents have to bring their bag and physically hand it to the gentleman or the gentlewoman on the back of the trash truck. And it works. Now, every community is different. Yeah, that wouldn't go over here. That <laughs> wouldn't go over <laughs> in Boston. But the point being, so EPA, for instance, as you, you raise the issue of illegal dumping, EPA has looked at that. And when you look at illegal dumping in most communities, they don't, have, they don't start from a baseline. So there's a perception that there's illegal dumping, but they didn't start with an understanding of where illegal dumping was to begin with. So that's a flaw in the analysis that would need to be figured out. Uh, but about 80%, according to EPA, I think they say 80, 75 to 85%, we'll call it 80%, um, of illegal dumping is commercial material. So it's renovation waste, it's contractor waste, it's stuff that isn't part of the, a pay throw program to begin with, which is only residential. Right, right. So, so take 80% of that off the table to begin with. And then the solutions that exist to prevent illegal dumping are curbside recycling, or at least making recycling available, and having a bulky waste disposal program. Well, Boston has both. Most communities in Massachusetts have both. So the understanding that that's a concern and needs to be flagged, Harvard did a study back in the 90s that looked at concerns of various issues regarding pay-as-you-throw, pre-implementation, during implementation and after implementation and illegal dumping was one people were super concerned about and then fell out of the top five concerns after implementation they realized they should have focused on a whole host of other stuff because one thing I've learned in this business is by and large if people know the rules, people are good and they know that if I dump illegally, the man's coming after me, they will find me. About 60-something percent, in the mid-60% of the time somebody dumps illegally, they actually leave identifying information in the bag. Hmm. So they leave their water bill in the bag. <laughs> and then the police just simply go and they either bring it back to you and give it to you or they fine you $300. So it's something to keep an eye on. It's something I'm not minimizing, particularly in a big, very complex city, but New York City issued an RFP and is now evaluating it now for New York City to go bag-based to throw hmm. So they're going to be evaluating these issues in great detail uh, over the next year or so. And it'll be interesting to see. Um, New York is a different scale, but if it can work in very large, complex cities, I would have confidence that we could figure it out here as well.
0: Right. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about is um, personal uh, consumption habits. Are, are we getting more wasteful in um, the way we go out and get things and acquire things and then want to throw all the packaging or whatever away? Or
1: are we improving on that at all? So Massachusetts is a little bit different than some other, fo- some other states, as an example. So we started at a better level from, from a recycling standpoint. So if you look at my community, my community is one of the biggest recyclers in Massachusetts but it is also one of the highest wasting communities in Massachusetts. In other words, it has one of the highest recycling pounds per person and one of the highest trash pounds per person. So what we find is that people are consuming more they are just fast fashion. Fat. Everything is, in the economy is cycling over quicker. And with the use of Amazon and other delivery services, um, people are getting more things shipped. So there's more packaging waste there. And then there's more complex packaging waste for food. So if you buy um, a cucumber, it's now wrapped in plastic. Well, that extends the life of the cucumber by another week. But it's now waste that you have to deal with. So they're trying to reduce the food waste, but you now have packaging waste. So it's a very interesting dynamic that you see plastics getting thinner, less newspaper, unfortunately, being consumed, um, more cardboard being produced, less glass. So you see some materials dropping, some materials increasing significantly. And now you really get down to the individual as to what they're doing with all the stuff that was in the packaging. Are they composting that cucumber that went bad, or are they throwing it in the trash? That sweater that's now out of style or has a rip because it was cheaply made, are they donating that, and that's becoming insulation in a, in a car, um, or are they throwing it away? And so that's really where the question comes, and we see different communities moving in different directions on that.
0: Steve, Steve Lasowskis, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we had a great talk today and uh, please to all our listeners out there join us next week at the same time for um, the next podcast or you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud at any time. Thanks Steve. Thank you very much for us. Oh I love trash Anything dirty or cinchy or dusty Anything ragged
1: or rotten
0: or rusty Yes I love